This is a Cato Special Podcast. I'm Caleb Brown. Former President Trump has been indicted again, this time in Georgia for alleged crimes in pursuit of an illegitimate overturning of the 2020 presidential election. There are a few things that will be different about this case. A large number of co-defendants and likely cameras will be providing live coverage of the proceedings. Cato's Clark Neely offers his take. This is, at least for the former president, the fourth indictment. This one is different, at least for one reason. It's in a state court. Can you talk about just the difference between the fact that these are state charges versus federal charges? Yeah. So uh, besides, you know, just the fact that there are different procedures in state court than in federal court, I think the biggest difference is that um, there is no presidential pardon power for state convictions. So if Donald Trump and or um, some or all of his uh, co-defendants end up being convicted um, in the Georgia case, uh, there will be no uh, possibility of a of a presidential pardon. Um, and that's that's a game changer, potentially. And among his co-defendants in this case, Rudy Giuliani and Mark Meadows, people who worked in or uh, for on behalf of the administration. Does that make a big difference here? I think it does. And it's not just those two. I mean, you're, we've also got uh, Jeff Clark, who was acting attorney general, uh, General Ellis and Sidney Powell. And so, you know, the more co-defendants you have, the more opportunities there are for some of them to cut a deal. And that's how most white collar cases go down. Somebody cuts a deal with the prosecutors, turns on a fellow defendant and points the finger. Um, and that's what I expect to see happen in this case. I think that there's going to be a lot of pressure uh, for at least some of these folks to say, you know, listen, I Donald Trump was my client or he was my boss. And when he said we're going to do this, I went along, but this was all him. Let's get to the substance of the claims here. I think a lot of people are probably pretty familiar with the January 5th phone call uh, where Donald Trump appeared to be, as far as I can tell, vaguely threatening the secretary of state for the state of Georgia, telling him if essentially if if you don't find me roughly 12,000 votes, there are going to be some criminal consequences for doing that. Yeah, that's right. And it's it's so important. So let's contextualize this. The defense that we can expect um, in this case and and probably also the the January 6th indictment here in D.C., is essentially this. Look, I, Donald Trump, had a sincere belief that the election was conducted fraudulently and that uh, there were real questions about some of those procedures and the outcome. And I was exercising my rights to um, press those claims and concerns. Now, here's the thing. If that belief was sincere and at least plausible, um, he he did have a right to to use at least some means to essentially you know try to vindicate uh, those concerns. Now, here's the thing: that doesn't mean that he was permitted or had a legal right to use any and all means. So he, certainly, he can't fly down to Georgia and put a gun to the head of the Secretary of State and say, "Hey, listen, this this election was fraudulently conducted, and so you're going to invent a bunch of votes for me so that I will you know now win Georgia." That, in effect, is what the allegation is. He didn't use a gun, but as you say, there was this none-too-subtle threat that if you don't 
comply with what are essentially my instructions to find enough votes to put me over the top in Georgia, there will be criminal consequences for you. In other words, I will direct my Department of Justice to go after you. I think reasonable people can absolutely find that that crossed the line and was sufficiently akin to putting a gun to somebody's head that it doesn't matter whether Trump sincerely believed that there were problems with the election or sincerely believed that he won. The fact that he went about you know, pressing those supposed beliefs in that manner, in that improper manner, will be enough for a conviction. So that's the one that jumps out at me. What jumps out at you in this indictment? Yeah, I think it's a mistake to sort of look at the indictment um, in, in a super granular way and and focus on, oh, you know, uh, did they really break into a voting machine? Did they steal data? Did they share it, et cetera? The, the complaint, the, the, the indictment alleges a conspiracy among 19 defendants to accomplish the unlawful end of overturning the results of the 2020 election and going about it through unlawful means. and. Uh, that really is the thrust of this case. And that's, I think, what the jury is ultimately going to decide. Um, and of course, they'll have to, they'll have to, uh, uh, make return a verdict on the individual counts. There are 41 counts in the indictment. They'll have to return a verdict on each and every one. My sense is the way that most juries work in a really complicated case like this is they essentially arrive at a kind of a, a, a sense of the overall case. You know, was this a criminal attempt to overturn the results of an election that was undertaken through criminal means? If the answer is yes, then you're going to see convictions on some or all of the counts. Um, if the answer is no, then presumably you'll see an acquittal on all of the counts. Uh, but again, I, I think it would be a mistake to get sort of super granular and say this this case turns or, fall, or falls on whether the prosecutor is able to convince him that on such and such a date, you know, they really did, you know, misrepresent themselves or distribute fraudulent documents to come up with a fresh slate of electors. Shortly after the awful events of January 6th, 2021, uh, the House impeached Donald Trump. And then shortly after Donald Trump left office, the Senate tried uh, Donald Trump as they are, uh, I, I suppose, ought to do in, in general to take that matter seriously. But there were multiple U.S. senators who basically punted and said, look, this is a matter for courts to deal with. Um, now courts are dealing with that with respect to the January 6th indictment. Um it always surprised me that the articles of impeachment that were offered by the House didn't include anything about that January 5th phone call. Yeah, I mean, look, make no mistake. We are in the mess that we're in, by which I mean a president, a former president of the United States who's been indicted in four different jurisdictions and is being prosecuted for, for criminal acts. We are in that mess because a bunch of feckless cowards in the Senate failed to do their clear constitutional duty and put their political uh, calculations ahead of their constitutional duty. And uh, the idea, oh, there's a criminal process. That was a cop out. Um, they were they were kicking the can down the road. Uh, and that's why we're where we are now. What they should have done and what they had an opportunity to do and what they had a constitutional obligation to do, in my judgment, was to convict Donald Trump in the Senate and remove him, permanently remove him from office. And we wouldn't be where we are right now. And in the wake of January 6th, I understand that there are plenty of people who I think mistakenly felt that the events of January 6th can be seen through a lens of 
people sincerely having concerns about the election. I reject that. I understand some people um, still think that's the case. But I think during those days, I think there would have been a sort of a national sense that impeaching Donald Trump, convicting him in the Senate and permanently removing him from office was exactly the right thing to do. Um, perhaps not every single American would have felt that way, but I do think there would have been a, a, a rough national consensus at that time. And the fact that those feckless senators failed to do their constitutional duty is what put us in this position right now. And it is a mess. It is just an absolute mess. Trying to use a fundamentally broken criminal justice system to accomplish what a fundamentally broken Congress was supposed to accomplish and didn't. And I, I think we should be upset about it. And I'm upset about it, as you can tell. One note as this moves forward, uh, I mean, it seems clear that uh, Donald Trump will plead not guilty just based on how he has conducted himself uh, in other indictments. But one issue that that you and I have talked about privately is cameras in courtrooms. And right. in Georgia, we expect there to be cameras in courtrooms for the trial that will uh, I think it's almost inevitable will occur. Yeah, that's right. I believe there's already been an order to that effect. So that's that it looks like that is going to happen. Um, you know, I think it is absolutely disgraceful that the federal courts still forbid uh, cameras inside courtrooms. I understand. I have litigated cases in federal court. I get the arguments on both sides. But look, the Sixth Amendment to our Constitution provides that there shall be a public and impartial jury trial. I think in this day and age, that the idea that the only people who get to see uh, what actually happens during a case, a prosecution of a former president, are those who are have the time and the luck to get one of the small handful of seats available in a federal courtroom, and that they get to see it. They get to 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 you know uh, the benefit of the Sixth Amendment right to a public jury trial. And by the way, that's not just a right of the accused. It's an important right of the accused, but that is in there for all of us so that we can see for ourselves how the case unfolds and what it looks like when the government's evidence and arguments are tested in court. Uh, and the idea that even in something as momentous as the prosecution of a former president, we essentially just have to uh, get secondhand accounts from people who are fortunate enough to be in the courtroom, uh, I think is, is just indefensible. And I think even arguably a violation uh, of the Sixth Amendment at this point, because it, technically it's feasible. People have a, a huge and important and constitutionally significant interest in seeing this for themselves and making their own assessments. And you've got a federal judiciary that says, well, what happens in our courtrooms um, is not sufficiently your business um, that we're going to change this policy. And if you're interested to know what happens in the prosecution of Donald Trump, you can just uh, get secondhand news from people who got to see it. To hell with that. What are the next steps here? We're going to talk about this several more times, uh, of yeah. course. But um, uh, what are the what are the immediate next steps? Well, I don't know specifically how Georgia procedure works, but in general, what would happen is that the defendants will be arraigned. That means they'll make an appearance in court uh, where they will enter enter pleas. There will be discussion um, of of whether they're going to be uh, you know released on their own recognizance or released on bail or not released. Uh, I would expect all of them to be released on personal recognizance, uh, which is you know what has happened in the other cases. Um, and then there'll, there'll be, you know, the, the kind of litigation that we've seen in the other prosecutions. There'll be, uh, discussions and disputes over the timing of the trial, the production of evidence. Um, and, uh, there may be even, who knows, maybe there'll be an effort to, uh, to move the trial to another venue. Um, so all of that stuff will be in play. And 
I, I honestly, I, you know, as you know, I have been a constitutional litigator for most of my career. I've been involved in some very interesting and challenging cases. I cannot even get my head around the idea of a, a criminal prosecution of 19 defendants, one of whom is the former president of the United States and several of whom are former high ranking uh, White House officials in a state court or any court for that matter, uh, but with all of the legal teams that will be involved, all of the back and forth, all of the uh, complexity that that entails, um, this is going to be, I think, one of the most spectacular uh, court cases in the history of this country, if not the most spectacular. And anybody who thinks they know how it's going to unfold, I think, is, is, is dreaming. Clark Neely is Senior Vice President for Legal Studies at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please. And thank you for listening.